Amen. You may be seated, and I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 13. It's good to see you here this morning. Matthew chapter 13, and we are going to look at verses 34 and 35. Verses 34 and 35, and as you make your way there, when we sing, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me, uh, it's in one sense true that God has shown immeasurable kindness, immeasurable riches of love towards sinners, and yet... To sing how marvelous, how wonderful seems to fail to capture the depth and the width and the height and the the gravity of God's love for us. Especially when we consider who we were before Christ. We sometimes think that before Christ we were okay people. That we had most of it all together. That we maybe had one or two idols, we had one or two pet sins, but by and large, we're good people. And yet the Bible comes along and it says, no, you're actually way worse than you could possibly imagine. In fact, your heart is so corrupt, so depraved, so prone towards wickedness that unless God showed you just how wicked you were, you would never understand the depths of your depravity but then the scriptures also talk about that God before the foundation of the world chose who he would redeem that God looked down through time and he didn't see just a faceless mass of people that he would save he saw his people he chose and he loved so when you think about Your salvation, what Jesus did for you. Think about this. Before you ever came to a point in your life when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, Jesus saw every single sin, every single thing you did, and yet still chose you. Why? Because He loved you. (laughs) How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love. Not just for people Not just for a mass, a nameless populace. How marvelous is my Savior's love for me. Thank you, Jesus. When we come to Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, what we are shown is the heart of Jesus Christ. We're shown not just the heart of Jesus Christ, but in seeing the heart of Jesus Christ, we're seeing the heart of God and His love for His people. Now, in order to understand exactly what's going on in this text, it's good for us to do a little bit of reminding, okay? Last, or a few weeks ago, we looked at Matthew 13, verses 10 through 17, And we looked at the reason why Jesus spoke in parables. And if you remember, in verse 11, Jesus says to his disciples, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. And then in verse 17, Jesus tells the disciples, Many prophets long to see what you see and hear what you hear. 
So if you remember that, we encounter a similar theme this morning when we look at verses 34 and 35. So we want to have that kind of ringing in our minds as we read verses 34 and 35. Listen to what the Word of God says. It says, Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables. And he did not tell them anything without a parable. So that, verse 35, what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. I will open my mouth in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So in verse 34, Matthew tells us that Jesus taught in parables. And he actually emphasizes it because he says he told them this in parables. And it says he did not tell them anything. And when he says he did not tell them anything, Matthew is teaching the habit that Jesus. So we read the Gospels and we know Jesus didn't only use parables, right? But he used them enough that Matthew says this was his habit. This was his custom in speaking with the crowds. He spoke in a parable. But then notice when we get to verse 35, it's not without reason. Why does Jesus speak in parables to the crowds? Matthew says, so that it would fulfill Scripture. It would fulfill what the prophet said. You see it in verse 35. Why? So that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Now, if you have a Bible that sets off quotations, you understand, you can see that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. And you might think, oh, that's Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Or maybe it's the prophet Jeremiah. Or maybe it's one of the minor prophets, uh, uh, Ezekiel, Daniel. Who knows? But when you look at it, Matthew is actually quoting a psalm. And he quotes Psalm 78, verse Now, if you go look at Psalm 78, you realize that this is not written by David. It's written by Asaph. Asaph writes Psalm 78, and you say, why do we note that? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, who was Asaph? Okay, Asaph was a descendant of Levi. When he... uh, uh, He's a a descendant of Levi. He's a part of the Levitical priesthood. So if you go to 1 Chronicles 15, verses 16 and 17, we're told that David commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint some of their brothers, fellow Levites, to be singers. And the text tells us who do they appoint? Well, they appoint Asaph, among others. So he's a priest, and we know this furthermore from 1 Chronicles 16, 37. It says that David left Asaph and his brothers, and listen to this, there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister regularly before the Ark as each day required. So Asaph is a priest. But that's not what Jesus, or that's not what Matthew says, is it? It's not to fulfill the words of a priest. It's what? To fulfill the words of a prophet. You say, well, Asaph was a priest, but he, was he a prophet? Yes, he was. Listen to, make a note of this. If you don't believe me, go look at 1 Chronicles 25, 2. And we are told there that Asaph, listen, prophesied under the direction of the king. So you have Asaph, who's a priest, but he's also a prophet. That's who Asaph was. Now, now that we know who he was, what did he write about in Psalm 78? Well, one theme throughout Psalm 78 is the repeated failure, the repeated sin, the repeated rebellion of Israel. And as you read Psalm 78, 
you read it and it's almost as if, will Israel ever get the point? They keep on sinning and God delivers them. They keep on rebelling and God loves them. They keep on being unfaithful, but God keeps being faithful. And so you have these little notes of hope sprinkled throughout the psalm. But when you get to the end of Psalm 78, verses 70 and 71, listen to what it says. So here's the priest, prophet, saying this. The Lord, verse 70, chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people Jacob, as uh, Jacob of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart and skillful hands. With skillful hands, he led them. So here's a priest and a prophet who closes out his psalm looking at Israel's rebellion and God's faithfulness. And he says, what our hope is, is a David. We need a David. God promised a David. David would be a king He was a king after God's own heart. And God made a promise to this David that he would have a descendant that would sit on the throne forever. So we have this prophet priest who's saying our hope is a king. It's a David. It's someone who would shepherd God's people with faithfulness, with an upright heart and skillful hands. So why are we pointing out this language of prophet, priest, and king? But what do we find in Matthew? We have Matthew quoting the words of the prophet priest Asaph who points to the king. And Matthew's point is now here in Jesus Christ we have a truer and better David. Jesus is descended from David. But he is a truer and better David. And what is this David teaching about? What has been the subject of every parable so far? I want to see if you remember the sermons you've been listening to. What are the parables about? The kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. So this, these uh, prophecies point to we need a king. And we come to Matthew and we find a king talking about the kingdom. So prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Testament, these are separated. The prophets spoke the word of God and they revealed God's will. The priests were the intermediaries between the people and God. And the king was separate as David and his descendants and others. But in Jesus Christ, we now have prophet who speaks God's true word to us. We have priest. He's going to be our great high priest. He's going to lay down his life, shed his blood on the cross that our sins might be forgiven. That we might be reconciled back to God. And he's also the king. So why does it matter? Matthew is saying the one that you've been waiting for is here. The king, the prophet, and the priest. Jesus fulfills this psalm. Psalm 78. And we also know this because if you read Psalm 78, it's not necessarily very overtly messianic. In fact, some people would say... That are not, you know, they would not believe the Bible or say different things about the Bible. They would say, Matthew got this wrong. He took Psalm 78 out of context and and he's misapplying it. But what Matthew is doing is saying that text points to Jesus. And every text points to Jesus. But that's not all that, that Matthew says, okay? Because what does Jesus say as this prophet, priest, and king 
he says, I will open my mouth in parables. So what are the parables about? The kingdom. And who is speaking the parables? The king. So now, instead of the telephone game about the kingdom, instead of relying on other people, we have the king himself telling us about the kingdom. And it says that he comes to speak in parables. Why? In order to declare hidden things from the foundation of the world. Now, there's a couple things to note here. Okay, first... Look at what it says, to declare things kept secret. By whom? Who's been keeping this secret? It's God. So how can someone claim to reveal God's secrets unless they are God? If they're not God, they don't even know what the secrets are let alone be able to reveal them. So not only is Jesus prophet, priest, and king, but he's not just a man. He's God himself explaining his kingdom. So it's hidden by whom? Jesus. So it can only be uh, it's re- hidden by whom? God. So who can it only be revealed by? Jesus, God himself. So we have God as the king doing this. Hid- Revealing the hidden things from the foundation of the world. That's the first thing I want you to notice. But second, I want you to notice Jesus' glory and wisdom. Think of it this way. I'll give you a test. Do you want to know whether you really understand a subject or a topic? Try to teach it to children. It's easy to go to an expert and to, you know, use the jargon and and do the academic dance. But when you have to explain something to a child, when you have to, to explain something in simple terms, that's when you really know that you've got a grasp on it. Can we can we agree on that? Right. In fact, we might say that the mark of an expert is not how complicated they can make things sound, but how simply they can put very complicated matters. Right. And so when we take that to a whole nother level, here we have Jesus making the mysteries of the kingdom, the secrets of the kingdom, so easily understood that he tells them in parables about weeds and wheat and seeds and planting and sowing. It's not just that Jesus knows the information. He's mastered the information. He knows it all. So much though, he so is the source of all that wisdom that he can take the wisdom of the universe, the wisdom of the kingdom, and put it in a parable of sowing seeds. That is glory. That is wisdom. That is God demonstrating his godness. So Jesus is able to take these very complicated things about the kingdom, things that have been hidden since the foundation of the world, and make them known. So here's another way I want you to think about it. This is, when it comes to the kingdom of God, this is the king telling all his secrets. If you want to know about the kingdom of God, if you want to know about the kingdom of heaven, how it comes, what's its nature, You listen to the king. You listen to what Jesus says. So the king is giving out his kingdom secrets. 
And we could spend a lot of time talking about what all these secrets are. And we've talked about them in the parables that we've discussed beforehand. And what they say about the kingdom. And what they say uh, after this passage about the kingdom. We're going to talk more about it. But I want to focus on one. One of the biggest secrets being revealed through Jesus Christ. He's talked about the nature. He's talked about how it grows unseen. But this morning, I want us to think about the secret that Jesus is telling us about the kingdom, and it's this. How do we get in? How do we get into the kingdom? How is it possible that we can find ourselves citizens of the kingdom? How do we get into the kingdom? And what Jesus is teaching in, this, in the previous parables and the ones after this is, and in his whole ministry, is that we come into the kingdom by God's kindness alone. By God's grace alone. Now this goes to the very heart of the gospel. You say, how do we know this? Because this secret, this information that's kept hidden, Paul makes a big deal about this in several places in his epistles. In Romans 16, 25 through 26, Paul speaks of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been revealed. You can write this down, Ephesians 3, 8 and 9. Paul says, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given. What grace? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone, listen, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God? Galatians 1, verses 24 through 28. Paul says he was called by God, quote, to make the word of God fully known. Verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. So Paul is saying that God chose to make known the great riches of a mystery known to unbelievers, to Gentiles, to people who are far from God. And what is that mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that's why Paul says, Him we proclaim. So, the king is telling his secrets about the kingdom and he's telling us how to get in. So if we were going to wrap all of this up in a nice little package, a nice little bow, how do we understand what Matthew is teaching us? If you remember nothing else, I hope you remember this. As God, Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king, revealing the truth that entrance into the kingdom is by God's grace alone. As God... Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king revealing the truth that entrance into the kingdom is by God's grace alone, God's kindness alone. If you go back and you read the parables we've looked at already, you see this. The seed is the word of God. The sower is the son of man, Jesus Christ. The kingdom is leaven and mustard seed. You see, all that's God's work. You see, in one sense, these parables, when we read them, they are terrible news for us. They're terrible news for you. 
They're terrible news for me. Because what we see, in a sense, when Jesus tells the parable of the soils and we read about the good soil, you know what Jesus is saying? He says, you can come into the kingdom if you're good soil. That's the problem, isn't it? Nobody is good soil. Our hearts are a dry, desert wasteland where nothing of the kingdom will grow. If you think about the parable of the wheat and the weeds, when you see that, Jesus says, you can get into the kingdom, you, you have to be wheat. You need to be wheat, you need to grow up, you need to be uh, not the weeds that are thrown into the fire. And that's terrible news because we're all born sinners. So it says be good soil, be wheat, and yet we know we're not. And so in revealing the secrets of the kingdom, what Jesus is actually doing is inviting us to trust in him. In Psalm 78, the hope is the king, the son of David. In Matthew, the hope is Jesus, our hope of redemption. So what Jesus is doing is telling these parables so that we might come to him. So that we might see our need for him. That we might see how utterly desperate and empty and unable we are to save ourselves. And he's inviting us to rest in him. When we think about God's kindness as a king, I think about the story in 2 Samuel chapter 9, the story of Mephibosheth. If you don't know the story of Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth was a descendant of Saul. And King David decides to show grace and kindness on a descendant of Saul. And Mephibosheth was lame. He, his legs didn't work. He had to be carried everywhere he went. There's no way that he could bring himself into the king's presence or even to the king's table. And yet when you read 2 Samuel, you'll see a beautiful picture of what Jesus does. Mephibosheth is carried to the king's table because the king decided to show kindness. So as God, Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king revealing the truth that entrance into the kingdom is by God's grace alone. When we say God's grace alone, I want you to hear me. This rules out any possible work you think you could do to get into heaven. Think about it. Everything that you might think would merit, even on your best day, your best five minutes of your life is still not enough to get you into heaven. You can't be good enough. You can't be a good enough parent. You can't be a good enough student. You can't be a good enough husband, a good enough father. Because for every good deed that you might do, there's at least 12 idolatrous, lustful sins and thoughts going on in your heart. The scriptures tell us in Romans 3.23 that we've all sinned and fall short of God's righteous requirement. The only hope of getting into heaven is perfection. You can only get in if you have a perfect record. And the problem is, is none of us have a perfect record. You say, my record's not that bad. Have you ever told one lie? Then your record is garbage. 
If you've ever put anything in first place instead of God, just one time. If you've ever known something was wrong and you did it in any way, just one time, your record is trash. You're like the Panthers. (laughs) So how do we get in? It's by God's grace along God's kindness. You see, although all of that is true, the king is telling us and he's inviting us. And how is it that the king can invite us to trust him? Because this king knows what's coming a few chapters later. This king is going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be uh, treated with the utmost contempt. And then he's going to carry a cross. And he's going to be crucified on a cross. He's going to have nails driven through his wrists and through his feet. He's going to be there naked in front of everyone. And in front of the world Bearing the guilt for our sin. Bearing the punishment for our sin. And it's on that cross. Listen to me. It's on that cross where every sin you've committed. Every act of rebellion. Every instance of idolatry. Everything that you've ever done. God judges Jesus Christ as if he is you. And Jesus takes that punishment fully. And he dies. And then the good news is that because Jesus did that, he can now invite us to come. When we talk about being uh, brought into the kingdom by grace, what that means is Jesus has done everything for you to be saved. For you to come into the kingdom. The king has done it all. We talk about world leaders and, and, and all that they good that they might do, whether it's a president or a king or whatever. But here we have the king of the universe laying down his life, shedding his blood so that we might be invited to come in. So how do we get in? If that grace is there, what do we do? The Bible tells us that we rest in Christ. We trust in Christ. We look at what Jesus did and we say that is what God has done and it's enough. God tells me it's enough. And if I just trust in that, if I rest in that, if I take that and say that's my only hope, the scriptures say that we are saved, we're forgiven, we're cleansed. So, Jesus is God, the prophet, the priest, and the king, telling us that it's by God's grace alone that we come into the kingdom. Now, what do we do with that? How do we leave here this morning? Well, first of all, for every believer, rest Maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling with your assurance. Maybe you're struggling with your, your salvation. You've, you've heard the voices, the accusations, whether from yourself, from others, or from the enemy. And you're struggling with your assurance. My invitation to you is the same that Jesus would give. Rest in the assurance of your king. Think about a pilgrimage to, you know the story of the Pilgrim's Progress about Christian who's trying to make his way to the heavenly city and he encounters all sorts of people along the way, people that try to distract him and treat it and people that point him in the right direction. He's trying to get to that that heavenly home, that heavenly city. 
And all throughout life, we experience people who say, no, it's that way. No, you get in this way. No, all you have to do is this. No, you just have to, to do these, these things, and then God will be happy, and he'll be pleased, and he'll accept you. Excuse me. But when we come to our text this morning, we're looking for the heavenly city, and the king himself comes out to meet us, and he says, hey, I know where you're going. I know what you want. Let me tell you how to get there. So, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, that's what Jesus invited you to do. So rest in the assurance of what Jesus has promised you. If you believe in him, you are saved. But also... For every believer here this morning, I want you to observe the example of your king. Jesus is making known the secrets hidden from the foundation of the world. The gospel is a message that is meant to be declared. What's interesting about this is when it says, I open my mouth in parables, I will declare things kept in secret. This word for declare is a very, it's a very picturesque word. It's often used... Well, perhaps an example would be better. How would you describe this? Ready? <laughs> That's what this word will refer to. It's a belching. It is something that bubbles up from within and finds expression through the mouth. I'll tell you a little secret. If you want to know someone who can burp insanely loud, it's not me. It's not any of my children. Jesus is speaking these truths of the kingdom out of an overflow. They are coming from deep within. And that is the model that he gives us. So believer, burp the gospel to somebody this week. Belch the gospel Reflect on the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ until it wells up within you and that you have a holy dyspepsia, a holy, a, a, a righteous heartburn that this good news of the kingdom will be shared with someone. But for the person here who knows that they're not a believer... I want you to know God really does love you. And you may have a problem with that. You, you may struggle with that because you, you might say, Jason, but he doesn't know all the things I've done. He doesn't know what I did this last week. He doesn't know the things that I've said about him, the things that I've said to him. He doesn't know the things I've looked at on my computer. He doesn't know the things that I've done to other people. And yet I still say to you, Jesus loves you. And we know that he loves you because, number one, he's revealing the secret of the kingdom of how you get in. He would not do that if he didn't want you there. 
but there is grace for you. You can be saved if you'll trust in Christ today. You don't have to get your life together. You don't have to fix it. Let Jesus be your hope. And then lastly, as a bit of a personal testimony, I want to address if anybody is skeptical about what we've talked about this morning. Because I find this passage remarkably moving. It's remarkably moving because of the light in which our king is portrayed. When we look at the heart of Jesus, this answers, I I feel, a lot of the objections. So a skeptic might say, why doesn't God save everyone? Why doesn't God save everyone? My reply to that is, it's remarkable that God saves anyone. Jesus is showing, if it's by grace, grace means we don't deserve it. Grace means that he looked at you and said, even though they deserve death, I love them so much that I will die for them. So why doesn't God save everyone? It's remarkable that God saves anyone. It's remarkable that God saved me. And I'll tell you this, it's remarkable that he saved you. You might say, if Jesus is the king, And he's speaking about the kingdom. Why is there so much bad in the world? Why is there so much evil? Let me ask you a question. If Jesus is the king and and you're dealing with categories of good and evil, where did you even get categories of good and evil? If there's so much bad in the world, I would say, how is there anything good in the world? We've all seen it, right? The, the things that you, you read about in the news and you see the, the devastation and the death and the obsessions with, with so many idols. And we say, why, if God is king, if Jesus is king, why is there so much evil in the world? Can I flip it around to you and say, have you ever just enjoyed something? How is it that there's good in the world? That there's beauty in the world? That there's truth in the world? And you say, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Because we find all those things in Jesus Christ in our text this morning. He is beautiful. He is good. But most of all, I think the third thing I would say to a skeptic this morning is, if you can't, I I don't blame you. If you can't see. I I don't blame you for being skeptical. About what we've talked about this morning. Because it only makes sense if you see. If you can't see the beauty of it. It won't make sense. That the king of glory. The king of the universe. Would love somebody like me and you. And willingly lay down his life for them. If you can't see the beauty in that. And you're skeptical about that. When we talk about Jesus being king. And that the only way being by grace. That there's not multiple religions. There's not another way. If you can't see the beauty in what we're talking about. I I pity you. C.S. Lewis. (laughs) Said atheism's too simple. And he's right. 
So, Jesus, the prophet, priest, king, reveals the truth to us that entrance into the kingdom is by God's grace alone. Our time of response this morning is going to be to take the Lord's Supper together. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we are remembering this exact same promise. When we take the Lord's Supper, it's not so much about what you're bringing to the table. It's about what Jesus is offering you at this table. You say, Jason, I've, I've had a bad week. This table says that if you'll come and receive, there's grace. You entered by grace. You're sustained by grace. Grace is available for you here today. Why? Because Jesus says, this is my body, which is given for you. This is the blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so what I want us to do is to take a few moments. Yes, examine yourself. Yes, examine your heart. See where you might have sin that you need to confess. Any business that you need to do with the Lord. But let me also remind you that in your time of examination. Speak to your own heart. Speak to yourself and say. When I take the Lord's Supper. I am believing that I am receiving. Not from Jason. But from Jesus Christ himself. The grace that is promised to me through the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus and for the hope that he is. Lord, thank you that entrance into the kingdom, being made sons and daughters, is not a work that we can accomplish, but it was all done for us. That's what makes the gospel such good news, that it's freely given to us when we believe. We get all the good stuff when we believe. But more than anything, Lord, we get you. So, Lord, as we come to a time of the Lord's Supper, celebrating together as a church body, remembering what you've done for us, God, show us where we need to confess sin. But then also, let us not trust in our confession of sin as a means of gaining grace or meriting grace. But let us confess our sins and then trust in the one who paid it all for us, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, you work in the hearts of your people. So do that even now as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.